What if Queen Elizabeth had been a man? Believe it or not, there is a centuries-old theory proposing exactly this, that she was, in fact, a man. We dive into this bizarre idea in today's showcase episode, courtesy of Sebastian Major of Our Fake History. Our Fake History is a podcast that explores myths that people think are history and history that might be hidden in myths. And at the heart of today's episode is gender, the idea that maybe Queen Elizabeth was really a man. Now, is that preposterous? Yeah, it probably is. Deliciously preposterous. But what's great about this is what it teaches us along the way. We'll learn about the struggles that Elizabeth faced as a woman, the sexism of her age, and that of centuries after when this theory was being bandied about. That's what I find fascinating about Sebastian's wonderfully well-put-together episode today. So how about it? What if Queen Elizabeth had been a man? That's what we're talking about on today's Showcase episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. Hey folks, this episode of the History of Sex is sponsored by Let's Get Checked. Did you know that across the globe, men's healthy sperm counts have dropped by 50% in the last 40 years? When I heard this, I immediately Googled it and found out, yeah, it's true. Believe it or not, one in four men over 30 are low in testosterone and have a hormonal imbalance. And symptoms may include low energy or fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, or even just having a hard time making decisions. And that is why I would like to make you aware of our sponsor, Let's Get Checked. Their fast, affordable, and always confidential at-home test kits help our listeners take a measured approach to their health from the comfort of their own home. And it's not just male hormone testing either. Let's Get Checked offers a whole suite of tests for men, women, and everyone in between, and they are even developing a test for COVID-19. That's right, in the near future, you will be able to get tested from the privacy of your home. They're CLIA-approved, the highest-ranking level of accreditation. All data is completely anonymized to ensure your privacy, and new customers even get 20% off by using our URL and code. Just go to trylgc.com slash btnewberg and enter the code HISTORY for 20% off of your purchase. I tried it myself, and it was actually pretty easy. My kit came in the mail. I took a sample in the morning, mailed it out the same day, and in less than two weeks, I could see my test results online. And then a nurse even called me for a personal consultation, and I never even had to leave my home. So get yourself checked for hormone levels or whatever is on your priority list. Just go to trylgc.com slash btnewberg and use our code HISTORY to get 20% off. That URL, once again, is trylgc.com slash btnewberg. Let's get checked. Queen Elizabeth may be England's most recognizable and well-loved historical figure. The so-called Virgin Queen is credited with creating a golden age in her island nation. 
Her reign saw England transform from being a middling power to becoming a major player on the European stage. She stared down the King of Spain and defeated the fearsome Spanish Armada. The arts flourished under Elizabeth's reign, and figures such as Edmund Spencer and William Shakespeare would produce some of the English language's greatest treasures. Elizabeth was easily the most important woman of her generation and perhaps her century. But what if she wasn't a woman at all? What if England's queen was actually an imposter in drag? This certifiably bananas historical conspiracy theory continues to float around the legacy of Elizabeth. Is there anything to this absolutely bonkers theory? Where the hell did this story come from? And why do female leaders constantly have to deal with this kind of historical trolling? This is our fake history. Episode 1. Was Queen Elizabeth actually a man in drag? Hello, and welcome to Our Fake History. My name is Sebastian Major, and this is the podcast where we look at historical myths and try and figure out what's true, what's false, and what is just such a good story that it can't not be told. Today we're going to tackle one of the most ridiculous historical myths that I may have ever come across. The strange story that Queen Elizabeth was actually a man. This historical conspiracy theory is so scandal-rag-worthy that even as recently as 2013, the venerable British trash mag, the Daily Mail, ran a large feature about it. The story has everything that makes for a great historical scandal. A well-known, well-beloved historical figure, a tangled web of conspiracy and lies, and some freaky sex stuff. But is there anything to substantiate this preposterous theory? Well, first we need a little bit of context. Elizabeth was the daughter of the notorious King Henry VIII. Henry had a storied reign as the King of England, but he's probably best known for inventing his own religion and chopping off the heads of wives that displeased him. Elizabeth's mother, Anne Boleyn, had been the first unfortunate woman to be decapitated by the king. The king had married Lady Anne after divorcing his former wife Catherine of Aragon, a move that had supremely upset the Pope. You see, the Pope had already given Henry special permission to marry Catherine, being that she had been his brother's widow. To renege on an already weird arrangement, well, that was too much for the Holy Pontiff. So, Henry went through with the divorce without papal permission, and this breakaway from Rome was the beginning of the Anglican faith, which put Henry, the King of England, as God's right-hand man. Starting a new religion to get a divorce seems a bit rash, until you consider Henry's motivations. Henry, like all kings, was obsessed with securing his succession and strengthening his family's dynasty. Catherine had been unable to provide Henry with a son, and she was fast approaching the end of her childbearing years. Henry's affair with and later marriage to Anne Boleyn was just as much about dynastic politics as it was the king's taste for the younger ladies. Unfortunately for King Henry, Lady Anne would be no more successful in bearing him a son than Catherine before her. After a number of tragic miscarriages, Anne Boleyn would only ever carry one child to term, the future Queen Elizabeth. 
A disappointed and exceedingly capricious Henry would soon cook up rumors of treason, infidelity, and even incest about his second wife and eventually have her publicly executed. Elizabeth, as Henry's second daughter, obviously had a tumultuous relationship with the king. After her mother's death, she had been disinherited and thoroughly set aside. However, the king would eventually warm to his daughter and would restore her inheritance and the title of princess. The king's good humor was helped when Henry's third wife would eventually bear him a son named Edward. But the little prince was chronically sick, and his chances of survival looked pretty slim. This is the world where our story of conspiracy and cross-dressing is set. The king's heir is sick, and he is looking evermore to his daughters to secure his succession. This is the perfect environment for shenanigans of the highest order. So let's hear the story. The year was 1543, and the grossly overweight King Henry VIII was being escorted in a stagecoach to the small English village of Bisley. The gout-ridden and ill-tempered king had braved the bumpy ride down the country roads for the express purpose of visiting his daughter Elizabeth. The young girl had been sent to Bisley the past summer to avoid an outbreak of plague in the capital. It was decided that the young girl would be cared for by her governess, Lady Cat Ashley, and one Lord Thomas Perry. But all was not well in Bisley. You see, little Elizabeth had come down with a horrible fever a few weeks past. And on the eve of King Henry's arrival, the girl had passed away. The real Elizabeth was dead. The couple were mortified. The king was going to be on their doorstep in a matter of hours. And if he arrived to find another dead child, then their lives would be forfeit. Even worse, they could expect to be treated to the most terrible kind of torture. The Daily Mail elaborates, saying, quote, The penalty would not even have been beheading but death by the most gruesome torture imaginable. They would be bound and dragged through the mud for a mile to the scaffold. There they would be hanged, cut down, and disemboweled. Their entrails would be hauled from their bodies and held in front of their faces as they died. And then their limbs would be hacked off and displayed on spikes to be picked at bare by the birds. End quote. Acting fast, the couple sent for one of Elizabeth's playmates, a local peasant boy named Neville. Neville was a skinny, feminine-looking boy who shared Elizabeth's unmistakable red hair. The two were roughly the same age, height, and weight, and so in desperation, Lady Ashley and Lord Perry had the boy dress up in his dead friend's clothes and play the role of the deceased Elizabeth. Astoundingly, the deception was a complete success. When the king arrived the next day, he requested a brief audience with his daughter. At this point, the king would have, have only have seen his daughter a handful of times when she was presented at court, and rarely bothered to visit the child. So when Neville was brought before the king, Henry was none the wiser. The king was in enormous pain from gout and tired from his journey, and this small, red-haired person didn't seem suspicious in the least. After spending the night, the king left, believing his daughter was alive and well in the hands of Lady Ashley. But now that the deception had worked, the real conspiracy was underway. 
Now that the king believed Elizabeth was alive, the illusion needed to be kept up. There were going to be other royal occasions where the princess needed to be present and accounted for. And so Neville, the Bisley boy, now had a full-time job impersonating Princess Elizabeth. The real Elizabeth was buried in a stone coffin in Bisley. Neville's deception would prove to be exceptional. When Queen Mary, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, passed away after a brief and calamitous reign, Elizabeth, come Neville, found himself next in line for the succession. Although there were persistent rumors about Princess Elizabeth, she was supported by a group of powerful courtiers who defended her claim to the throne. Elizabeth's Protestant faith ended up being of more importance than her suspicious gender. When Elizabeth ascended the throne, Lady Ashley would become the First Lady of the Bedchamber, and Lord Perry the Privy Counselor. Between the two of them, they could control who saw the Queen and under what circumstances. This is why Elizabeth never married and remained the Virgin Queen. Behind the pomp and finery of royal regalia, she could hide the fact that she had been born a dude. She would never let a man share her bedchamber for fear that he would discover her most shocking secret. Like any good historical conspiracy, this story is also supported by shreds of tantalizing evidence. The most obvious being the fact that Elizabeth claimed to be a virgin until the day that she died. This claim has been the source of endless speculation ever since, and seems to have opened the door for even the most audacious theories, the most off-the-wall being the one that we just read. Supporters of the theory also like to point out that in many of Elizabeth's own speeches, she liked to describe herself in masculine terms. She often claimed that she had the heart of a man and was unaffected by any, quote, womanly cowardice. For instance, during a famous speech where she roused her troops against the approaching Spanish Armada, she said, quote, I have the heart of a king and a king of England too, end quote. Taken on their own, these words don't seem particularly damning, but put in the context of the conspiracy theory, people can start to believe that the, perhaps the queen was not speaking metaphorically. Supporters of the Bisley Boy theory also like to point to royal portraits as proof of the imposter. The Daily Mail tells us that in an early portrait, the young Elizabeth is presented with a slender neck and shoulders and a feminine heart-shaped face. This gets contrasted with a later portrait of Elizabeth as a queen. Her body is obscured by frocks and she has a square, masculine jaw. More tantalizing are the shreds of historical evidence that Lady Ashley and Lord Perry had some dark secret. A letter written by a court spy to the powerful Lord Somerset had this to say, quote, I do verily believe that there hath been some secret promise between my lady, Mistress Ashley, and the cofferer, Thomas Perry, the principal officer of the court, never to confess to death, and if it be so, it will be never gotten of her, unless that by the king's majesty, or else by your grace. End quote. This suggests that Lady Ashley and Lord Perry had some terrible secret. But what was that secret? On that account, the sources are frustratingly silent. Mm-hmm. 
So is there anything to this historical myth? Well, I hate to be a killjoy, but I think it's safe to say that this story is a complete fabrication. This particular historical hoax is seen as so completely bogus by historians that few of them even bother acknowledging it, let alone taking the time to debunk it. In fact, even giving this theory the time of day can be seen as petty and sexist. The facts used to support this story are flimsy, cherry-picked, and stands against a mountain of evidence that Elizabeth was actually a woman. No self-respecting historian would even bother with this question. Well, lucky for you, I am no self-respecting historian, so let the debunking begin. The first huge piece of evidence against the Bisley boy myth is that it does not appear anywhere in the historical record before 1910. In fact, the first recorded mention of this story can be traced to Bram Stoker. Yeah, that Bram Stoker, the same Irish novelist who brought us Dracula. He first popularized the Bisley Boy myth in his quasi-historical work, Famous Impostors. The book traced the histories of a number of famous pretenders to the throne, but it was capped with an unbelievable tale, the tale of the Bisley Boy. Even Stoker himself seems to admit that the story is bonkers in the preface of his own book, where he writes, quote, Needless to say, the author was at first glance inclined to put the whole story aside as almost unworthy of serious attention, or as one of those fanciful matters which imagination has elaborated out of the records of the past, end quote. However, the author then goes on to assure his readers that, quote, There were too many circumstances, matters of exact record, striking in themselves and full of some strange mystery, all pointing to a conclusion which one almost feared to grasp as a possibility, to allow the question to be relegated to the region of accepted myth, end quote. In his book, Stoker claims that he had been introduced to the myth of the Bisley boy by Bisley locals themselves. He claimed that the so-called tradition of the Bisley boy had existed in the region ever since the mid-1500s, but never left Bisley because of its rural isolation. Even Stoker realized that this was a tough sell, and he takes extra time in the text to explain that even though it seems hard to believe, Bisley is in fact extremely isolated, despite the fact that it runs completely contrary to his earlier contention that the village was easy to reach from London, even in the 16th century, and had a number of major roads running through the area. The only other potential pre-Stoker source for the story comes from Bisley's vicar in the 1870s. A certain Reverend Thomas Kebble apparently found a stone sarcophagus when renovating the local church. In the sarcophagus was the skeleton of a child dressed in Tudor-era clothing. Some traditions hold that a joke between the clergyman about the skeleton belonging to the real Elizabeth may have provided the germ for Stoker's elaborate historical conspiracy theory. Otherwise, there are absolutely no letters or documents from Elizabeth's time or after that mention the fact that she was a man. Even more damning, there seem to be no rumors from Elizabeth's own time or for hundreds of years after her death that she was anything other than a woman. And don't think that's because people in the 1500s were somehow above scandalous gossip. On the other hand, we know that they were constantly spinning rumors about the Virgin Queen. It was basically the official sport of the royal court. But not even in a single letter does anyone ever question the queen's gender. In the world of historical fact-fighting, 
The later a story appears in the historical record, the higher the likelihood that it was made up. This story appears for the first time nearly 300 years after Elizabeth's death, and it appears in a book by the guy who wrote Dracula. So using just that basic rule of thumb, we can safely say that this story is BS. By all indications, Stoker made this story up out of whole cloth to sell some books. In fact, the rumors about Queen Elizabeth during her own time tended to be less about her gender and more about her virginity. Many reputable historians have pointed out that the virgin queen had a number of potential male paramours. Dr. Anne Halloway tells us that, quote, Contemporary beliefs about the insatiable sexual appetites of women, together with Elizabeth's failure to marry, fueled suspicion that the queen was engaged in secret sexual liaisons. Her Catholic opponents challenged her virtue and accused her of filthy lust that had defiled her body and the body of the country. The King of France joked that one of the great questions of the day was whether the Queen Elizabeth was a maid or no. The courts of Europe were abuzz with gossip as to the Queen's behavior. End quote. Even from the earliest days of her time as Queen, there were persistent rumors about the Queen being in a relationship with the courtier Robert Dudley, who it was said that she visited privately in his chamber almost daily. In fact, when Dudley's wife was found dead with her neck broken at the bottom of a flight of stairs, many suspected that the queen herself was behind this uh, unfortunate accident. We also know that she carried on flirtatious relationships with other courtiers, such as Thomas Henniage, Christopher Hatton, Walter Raleigh, and later Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex. Although there is considerably less proof that any of their relationships ever became physical. The other suitor who seemed to stir the queen was the young Duke of Anjou, whom Elizabeth promised to marry and shocked her court by publicly kissing the French noble on the mouth. In the end, the fickle Elizabeth decided against marrying the noble, but seemed heartbroken by the decision. In a strange twist for our stories, there was a persistent rumors that the Duke of Anjou himself was a transvestite and enjoyed dressing in women's clothes. I'm not sure if that detail helps disprove the Bisley Boy thesis, but it's just too rich not to mention. If anything, it shows that rumors of this sort were around and turn up frequently in the letters of courtiers. The fact that there are no rumors about Elizabeth's gender from her own times speaks volumes about the veracity of the claim. Taken together, we can see that the scandalous whispers around Elizabeth had more to do with her being a hypersexual 16th century party girl than her being secretly a man. If anything, Elizabeth was presented as being extremely feminine, especially by her enemies. As a result, Elizabeth felt the need to make herself appear more masculine in public, especially in matters of war and state propaganda. This is often given as the explanation for Elizabeth's insistence that she had the heart of a man. Often, such proclamations would be given in the context of speeches to her troops. As the Spanish Armada approached, perhaps Britain's greatest existential threat since the Norman invasions, Elizabeth donned a suit of knight's armor and presented herself as a fearless warrior before her people. These types of tactics were common for female leaders throughout history, Despite the fact that occasionally exceptional women have been able to rise to the highest rungs of power in their society, they were still living in a man's world. It goes without saying that early modern Europe was an intensely patriarchal society. 
For a woman to gain legitimacy and respect of her subjects and fellow rulers, she needed to present herself as stereotypically mannish. Feminist historians have argued quite convincingly that female rulers were often slandered based on their femininity. The rumors of Elizabeth's sexual appetites are a perfect example of this. As a result, female leaders were forced to portray themselves as, quote, surrogate men. Another famous historical example of this phenomenon is the Egyptian pharaoh Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut is the only recorded female pharaoh. She was not simply the wife of the king. She was the king, period. However, in all of the official statues and carvings, she was always pictured wearing the long pointed beard of the Egyptian pharaohs. There is also reason to believe that she would have worn a false beard during all of her official public appearances. In this case, a man's beard was proof of her man's heart. Even if a society would accept a female leader, they simply could not have her acting too womanly. Another example is Jadwiga of Poland, who reigned as the country's female king in the 1300s. In her time, Jadwiga couldn't even reign using the feminine title of queen, and as such was forced to take on the male epithet of king. When she married Jagalas of Lithuania, she was married as a king to another king. The patriarchy ran so deep that it was more comfortable for her contemporaries to accept two quote, men being married than a queen holding power over a large European empire. In this context, Elizabeth's need to appear masculine seems less like a clue about a hidden life as a transgendered person and more of a symptom of a male-dominated society that was deeply uncomfortable with women having power. So let's recap. The Bisley Boy story appears for the first time in 1910 in a book by Bram Stoker. The only corroborating evidence is a joke between clergymen and some vague innuendo in a letter, a crappy portrait, and the fact that Elizabeth was never married. The story doesn't seem to have any roots in Elizabeth's own time and doesn't even get mentioned in the extremely gossipy letters of her courtiers. The gossip there was about Elizabeth all had to do with her being sexually promiscuous and not, as she claimed, a virgin. Finally, Elizabeth's proclamations about her masculine virtues are all in keeping with the tradition of female rulers having to affect a manly pose in order to fit in with the patriarchal customs of the day. If you are still not convinced that Queen Elizabeth was a woman, this last detail should remove any doubts. Elizabeth was fond of showing off her cleavage. Even in her old age, historian Anne Whitlock tells us that the queen was known to wear dresses popular among unmarried women at the time that were split down the middle, sometimes all the way to the belly button, to show off the sides of the breasts. So yeah, members of the court saw the queen's boobs on the regular. In a lot of ways, I should have just led with that detail, as it kind of just stops all speculation in its tracks. Not to mention the dozens of women whose job it was to bathe and dress the queen every day and would have seen her naked on countless occasions. For not a single rumor of male anatomy to sneak out of the queen's bedchamber when so many other rumors were leaking, that's just preposterous. So all told, the Bisley Boy myth is a complete fabrication that we can safely assume was invented almost entirely by Bram Stoker. 
The fact that this myth has been so persistent, I think, tells us about our continued relationship with female leaders. Women in power still have to deal with ridiculous rumors that they are either sexually depraved she-devils or that they are somehow unattractively manly. I'm reminded of the slanderous myth about the death of the Russian queen Catherine the Great. Despite the fact that Catherine was easily one of the most intelligent and capable rulers of her time, her legacy is often tarnished by a preposterous story that she died while in a special contraption she had constructed so she could have sex with a horse. This rumor had even less historical basis than the Bisley Boy story, but it's even better known. In fact, for many people, it's the only thing they know about Catherine the Great. There are some historical myths that carry within them a grain of historical truth. The story can give an insight into a historical figure that is otherwise obscured by the sources. But in the case of the Bisley Boy, this is a myth that is dying to be debunked. Not only does it not tell us anything interesting about Queen Elizabeth and her times, it plays into old stereotypes about female rulers. Wherever you find a strong woman in history, you can be sure to find some scandalous rumor that she was promiscuous or murderous or into bestiality or she was actually a man in disguise. It's our job to examine these historical fictions and decide which should be celebrated and which should be pitched. I move to pitch the Bisley Boy. Thank you to Sebastian Major for today's episode. Folks, if you haven't already, you should definitely check out more of Our Fake History. It roves across history answering questions like, did the Aztecs really think Cortez was a god? Or was the moon landing actually faked? And if not, then why do so many people think that it was? I have found this show fascinating, and I think that you will too. So check out Our Fake History. Folks, we're going to have more episodes coming up this summer, maybe around once per month or so while I rest and recharge and catch up on portrait drawing. I've been doing a bunch of those lately. We'll have some more showcase episodes like this, introducing you to other great shows touching on sex and gender. And I am also working on some original episodes right now as well. As you may have guessed from my last episode, I have been deeply impacted by the killing of George Floyd in my own backyard here in Minneapolis like many here, and indeed all over the globe. And so I would like to do something related to gender expression around race and policing, but I still have a lot of learning to do on that. So look for something in the near-ish future on that. In the meantime, it's summer, and despite all the problems in the world right now, it's time to get out there for a run or a bike ride or a walk. So put your headphones in, put a good podcast on, Soak up that sun, and I will see you later this summer. All right, everybody, I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.